0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Happy Hour History. I forgot to say on the last one, but Happy Black History Month. Um, one of the people who I thought was notably fabulous was. Mary Beatrice Kenner. So she was born in 1912 and died in 2006. And in addition to filing the most patents of any African-American woman, one of her more famous patents that she filed was for the sanitary belt, which became what we know now today as the um, removable sanitary napkin, right? Or adhesive pad. So of course, considering that a lot of women prior to this had to wash Um, whatever, you know, garments they use, she's the one who filed the patent to make it removable and replaceable, which many of us enjoy, most of us in this country enjoy today. So for today's topic, I wanted to talk about the Civil War being that it is Black History Month and really sort of talk about some of the things that are very important about the war. So just as some background, many of you probably know that the Civil War was fought to end slavery But it's really not that simple, right? And some of you may know that it lasted four years from 1861 to 1865. But as persnickety as I don't get about timelines, especially for my class, I don't usually quiz people on dates. I always quiz about the years um, from the Civil War and also from Reconstruction immediately after that, because it's very important to understanding the timing of everything and how that relates to... American history, and then also Black history within this country. While the Civil War does start in 1861, one of the things that predates it is actually the, that's important, is the Fugitive Slave Act of 1851. So this is a whole 10 years before the Civil War started, but it's very fundamental because the Fugitive Slave Act of 1851 made it so that way, if a slave ran away, they would have to be returned to their plantation. Well, when you're in war especially to end slavery, that is not always going to be upheld, right? It's sort of this, of course, there's this common theme in American history where just because something is written down on paper doesn't mean that it's being adhered to and followed in real time. And that's an example of one when the union army would come into contact with someone who had run out of the North who, you know, before the emancipation proclamation, right. The two years, um, in the beginning of the civil war, they would not send them back. Like they were legally supposed to, they would usually offer them enlistment in the military for the union army. And of course, if you were one of these men, in this case, one of these men, you would rather enlist to fight for the, um, union army rather than be sent back to your former plantation. Duh. So, That's important. Now, one of the things that happens in early 1860s is, well, in this case, Lincoln did not want, for his first choice, Grant to be the leader of the Union Army. He actually wanted Robert E. Lee. Now, Robert E. Lee, as we know him, is the leader of the Confederate Army. But, and however, he's responsible for taking this half of Mexico and making it into the United States in the Mexican War or Mexican-American War of 1848. So Lincoln wants him because he's already proven himself to be a, um, you know, a military force, a strong leader, etc. And of course, you know, if Link- Lincoln wants the best, however, like we said, Lee doesn't want to, he decides to fight for the Confederacy and then Lincoln gets What's it? It slipped my mind. (laughs) Ulysses Grant to be the leader of the Union Army. It's also important to note that, of course, it takes a lot more energy to take the land away from others rather than to defend the land you're already on. So even though the North has a better railroad system and a better telegram system, which makes them able to communicate much better and also get supplies to their troops that much faster, they do not have the home court advantage and essentially Lincoln is really losing the war in the first half of it. Now why I say timing is also very important here is because as you have to consider, there are elections, right? Every four years. So 1864 is one of those years. So Lincoln, by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, he that is an executive order. Now, a lot of people know more about executive orders in the last four years because of Trump and then now because of Biden, then, you know, many of us previously thought of before. But the Emancipation Proclamation is an executive order because Lincoln doesn't know if he's going to win his reelection. And that way, if he does lose his reelection, he's at least freed the slaves of his enemies, right? The people who are in the decided Confederate states. But there were four states that did not officially take a side during the Civil War. So those are known as the border states. So Lincoln allows those four states to keep their slaves after he issues the Emancipation Proclamation, of course, until and he knows until the war is over and then he officially ends it for all the states. Those four border states are Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland and Missouri. So those four states are allowed to keep their slaves, but they don't have to, well, they don't have to give them up yet, right? They're allowed to keep them even after the Emancipation Proclamation, sort of as a thank you for the state not officially taking a side. Now, of course, there are people there in those states that feel allegiance to the union or feel allegiance to the confederacy but the state governments did not make an official stance so it serves as a nice buffer zone these four states are also um right below the mason dixon line so it acts as a nice buffer zone for the union army um to fight the confederacy and also He, Lincoln does not make some of the parishes, which in California, we would call them counties. He doesn't make some of those parishes give up their slaves either. So Lincoln is showing himself to be a politician, right? It's not just as simple as saying Lincoln freed the slaves in 1863. He didn't do that. He only freed them in the official Confederate States. And then not even all of the areas within those Confederate States, because again, he's trying to run for reelection. So it's not a stretch to think that the areas that he let those people keep th- their slaves were probably areas where he had a lot of political support for his re-election, but he does end up getting his re-election. Now, why would he release these slaves? Not only is he doing it just in case he doesn't get reelected, he's also doing it because he wants those able-bodied men in the southern states to leave and then join, come to the north, and join with the Union Army or join up with the Union Armies that are already in the South. Of course, right? Because they know the land. And as we already said, l- the Union does not have the home court advantage here. But of course, the enslaved population know the land. They've been working it in this case for 250 years. And especially because Lincoln does win his re-election, this helps him win the war. He's got you know, millions more soldiers who are willing and do join the Union Army to fight for their liberation. And he also has the support of being able, the ability to stay in control and keep the war going. Now, this is also a time where people who were the president and people who were the vice president had opposite political parties. So and sometimes you hear people misconstrue this today. So I want to be very clear about this. Lincoln was a Republican. Okay. Johnson, his vice president was a Democrat. But those parties were the opposite of what they are today. So had this been the 1860s, Lincoln would have been a Democrat, and Johnson would have been a Republican. So sometimes you hear people say, oh, well, you know, uh, you know, the Republicans or the party of Lincoln, not quite, that's disingenuous, right? It's not just as simple as saying that the party of Lincoln, they had opposite political <laughs> desires. And I don't know exactly what year it happened. But there was a shift soon after this, the Civil War time period, where the parties became cemented with the ideologies and goals and positions that they currently have today. So I'll talk a little bit more about them in a second. But it's very, I would definitely encourage all of you to read the Emancipation Proclamation. It isn't that long. And yes, there's a lot of weird verbiage in it. But one of the but Lincoln makes actually some interesting points. So one of the things that Lincoln says in the Emancipation Proclamation is that those people who are freed in the Confederate states should try to find employment. Now, you have to understand, and remember, this is the 1860s. So we don't have equal opportunity laws, or even, you know, gender equality, racial equality, disability or other ability, equality and accommodations. We don't have any of that yet. So Lincoln telling these 4 million people in the Confederate States that they are now free because that was the population of enslaved people at the start of the Civil War, 4 million. Him telling those people who are able-bodied and adults to go get jobs is really condescending, right? Because they've been working for free for 250 years up to that point. This is many, many generations of people Another thing that Lincoln says in the Emancipation Proclamation is that these people who are free should abstain from violence. Now, imagine somebody like Lincoln who is telling you, even though you've been brutalized your whole life and your whole, you know, your family legacy is one where you were the victims of physical violence, emotional violence, sexual violence, all of these things, you know, murder, that you should go quietly and... Be basically be thankful for your freedom. And I'm not saying that these people should not have been thankful, that my ancestors shouldn't have been thankful for their freedom. But what I'm saying is that when you understand that Lincoln is still a politician and he is still trying to unite the country and work with the people who have declared themselves his enemies and trying to break from the country, it gives you a whole new lens at which you're looking at the document, right? Um, let's see something else Lincoln says Lincoln says that in the document of course he's trying to convince these people to enlist in the military because that will help his cause so we know that he does win his reelection in 1864 he is able to follow out the end of the civil war and also win and then with the with that he issues the well we have the third yes the 13th amendment which abolishes slavery except It doesn't fully abolish slavery. The actual line in it, and some of you who've seen, um, you know, recent documentaries like 13th by Ava DuVernay is on Netflix. I think it's absolutely fabulous. And it's really relevant to today and how some of these insurrectionists have been treated um, on January 6th versus, you know, black people in general when it comes to the legal system. But it says that there's no involuntary servitude or slavery except as punishment of crime. So one of the things that we see happening during Reconstruction, and I'll talk more about that in another podcast, is we start seeing the criminalization of a lot of things. I don't know if you can hear my dog chewing on her stuff, but if so, I'm sorry. You have the criminalization of a lot of things just to get black people in jail. Because we must understand that the war is fought in the South. It's sort of like, I always tell my students, it's sort of like if you have a house party, People who are coming to your house, especially if you don't know these people, aren't always trying to be clean, right? Put their coaster or their drinks on coasters, um, you know, not make a mess. So it's the same thing in the South, They've had the Union come in, and they've all been fighting in the South's house, and now the South is torn up. Their railroads have been bent out of shape, so they can't use them. People's homes have been taken over as hospitals, and you know um, some of these plantation homes used as hospitals and used as um, quarter for soldiers, Confederate and Union, you know, separately obviously, but just in general. So they need to rebuild. Now they don't want to pay. <laughs> the former slaves, because they used them for free labor for 250 years. So the people who would have had money to rebuild their homes, and you know, I mean, I'm thinking plantation owners, but also the state government, they don't want to pay these newly freed slaves a wage to rebuild the area. Because that would be too much like right, right, that would be the right thing to do they also don't want to have to give skilled labor pay to the white people, the poor whites, who had also been their employees. So one of the things that's important to understand is that, again, this is the 1860s, so we don't have a publicly funded K-12 through education system that's free and accessible to all citizens yet. So most working class whites, which again, most of the whites were living in, you know, Um, under what we would consider today to be a livable wage so they're living in poverty they don't send their kids to school they don't get to continue school themselves sometimes but you know past what we would call like the first or second grade so a lot of them aren't even literate so these people had also been the employees of plantation owners but instead of being slaves to the land they were slaves to the clock and anybody who's ever had an hourly wage job knows what that's like when your employer says oh you know natalie we don't need you today you can go home and you're like okay though maybe the first day you're like great you know i wanted to go home anyway i'm tired i want to take a nap you know i want to go shopping or whatever but after a couple days of being sent home early you're like this is going to cut into my check right those people are dealing with the same thing so these people don't want to pay white skilled laborers to rep- to you know rebuild the south so part of that loophole again this is a pol- you know thinking about it from a politics standpoint that loophole in the 13th amendment creates the arena to criminalize normal small things use those people then as inmate labor which means that they have to work for the state for free as part of their quote rehabilitation and get them to rebuild the south without anybody having to pay these people and we know that it disproportionately affects the descendants of slaves now this is where i'm saying that the timing is important the 13th Amendment. Is it goes through in December 1865. But less than two weeks later, we have Black Codes. So all Southern states had Black Codes, and I'll talk more about those later, because to me that's in this Reconstruction, you know, the Reconstruction 12-year period. But Black Codes really limit the freedoms of everybody, really, even though on paper it looks like it's just limiting the freedoms of black people. So like I said, I'll talk about that at a later time. But essentially the point is, is that there was no period really of freedom. And even though these people had freedom on paper with the 13th Amendment, and there were civil rights acts that were passed in the, 1860, in the 1860s after the Civil War, um, there really is no real equality that's possible for these people. So backing up a little bit, Another, well, two other things that are important here are the difference in the types of groups that we have. So there were many people who, even before the Civil War, because of course, you know, these ideas are permeating decades before and they're just building up steam and building up movement and traction and, you know, networks. There were some people who were going to be and who were abolitionists and there are people who are anti-slavery advocates. So here's the difference. Abolitionists are people that, believe or people who believe that slavery is wrong. A lot of them use the Bible as justification. But it's important to remember that the Bible, as you know, the capital B Bible, was used to justify slavery in Genesis. So there's the story about Noah, and it depends on which version of the Bible you're reading. As anybody who's ever had to read it knows that, you know, they'd say different things at different times and which versions and everything, et cetera. But in Genesis, with the story of Noah, after the flood, Noah, I guess in some versions, gets drunk, and then his son Ham sees him and laughs. And then God, um, excuse me. Yeah. God curses this son, Ham, and makes him dark-skinned. And then the, the verdict is that his descendants will serve the descendants of his two brothers, right? Once the world is repopulated. So that story in the Bible in Genesis was used to justify subjugating all melanated people's but especially to maintain the transatlantic slavery that we're aware of. But abolitionists are really reading from, I would say, probably the exodus point of view. Right. And keep in mind, there are cameras in the late 1860s. So we have photographs of enslaved people, the brutality that they're going through. There are people who escaped slavery, came to the north and talked about their story like Frederick Douglass. There are people internationally who've run away from slavery and are having their stories transcribed and written and translated. different languages. So nobody can deny that the institution of slavery is very brutal. And if you're and since these people are really looking at it from a Christian standpoint, they believe that as children of God, all of us are equal. And that and many abolitionists believe that once slavery is over, black people should be equal in society. Okay. Now, anti-slavery advocates are a different group. Like the name implies, they also don't want slavery, but they do not believe that black people should or will be equal to whites in society. One of the most famous anti slavery advocates is Abraham Lincoln. So, again, thinking about the lens at which Lincoln is looking at this group of people, it makes sense as to why he wrote the Emancipation Proclamation the way he did, why the 13th Amendment is phrased the way that it is, and why there's, even though there's a 12 year period following the war where a reconstruction, where there is an attempt to reconstruct the the fabric of the country to incorporate these 4 million people as citizens, it doesn't last after. 1877, and there's still 130 years later, um, legislative and actual de facto and uh, de jure segregation, Jim Crow, racism, etc. Okay, so that's the difference between the abolitionists and the anti-slavery advocates. And I totally forgot to mention that my I am actually drinking during this happy hour history, of course, you know, for 21 and up, etc., I'm drinking Primo Amore Moscato that I got from BevMo. Um, This is in no way sponsored. I'm just sharing with y'all what I'm drinking. (laughs) Um, It's pretty spritzy and sweet. So if you like spritzy, sweet wine, I totally recommend it. It was not expensive at all. So I just wanted to add that in real quick. But I always argue to my students that really, even though the North won the war, like in a actual physical sense, the South won the, well, they really won the social war. Because again, considering the politics at hand here and the fact that there, there's the rejoining of the country, right? The end quote unquote of the Confederacy, these losers are allowed to keep their flag and they're allowed to impose their own racial rules for the next 130 years, after the Civil War is over, roughly 130 years. So even though they lost the war, you couldn't tell. Technically, the things that they do after the Civil War are federally illegal, but the North doesn't care. And that's what I want to talk about now, is the North really gets positioned as the saviors in this case, right? Because yes, they fought to end slavery. But like I said, many of these people were, even though they're in the North, they're not necessarily abolitionists. Many of them are anti-slavery advocates. And a lot of the people who are being enlisted into the military are immigrants. So they just got to the country. They're being recruited in these major cities to join the military, the union army in the military, because of course, And for the same reason a lot of people join the service today, they feel like joining will make them rooted in America and in fact at that time will make them be seen as having assimilated into American society. So there are plenty of people who are fighting in the war who don't necessarily believe in the ideology of what they're fighting in. They're doing it because they're getting something personally out of it, and they're hoping that their family and or their ethnic, cultural group, whatever, will also benefit from positive participation in the war in this case. And because of this, this is why you also see a lot of issues, even in the northern states, in this reconstruction time period, as well as, again, for the next 130 years, is because even though the North fought for the freedom of the enslaved people, they don't necessarily want them to be moving to the North. They don't want to have to compete with them for jobs. I mean, like I already mentioned, I mentioned it in the context of the South, but it's the same thing in the North. The South relies on slave labor because they have 4 million people who they don't have to pay, and the South at that time is growing two-thirds of the world's cotton. So of all the cotton grown in the world that's turned into sheets and clothes and flags and everything else that cotton gets turned into... Two thirds of it is coming from the United States and the Southern States, which means that all that money is just being pocketed by these people who are the plantation owners and by the industry that supports it. And in the North, those items are being turned into products. So the tobacco in the South is being rolled into cigarettes and cigars in the North. The cotton in the South is being sewn into garments in the North. But even and the North doesn't need slaves. They already have their boots on the necks of these European immigrants who they pay very low wages because, again, this is the late 19th century. There are no unions. There is no minimum wage. There is no 40 hour work week the way that we, you know, conceptualize of it today. There are no child labor laws. Some of you may um, know about the, I think it's the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, but, you know, like, where you have people who are being locked in their factories, these multi-story buildings, and if there's a fire, these people just die. Like, they they don't even have laws to make, like, I don't know if you've ever noticed when you walk through a door... There's that sign on the top that says that the door must remain unlocked during business hours. That didn't even exist yet. So it's crazy how we have all these things that we sort of don't pay attention to in our like normal day to day lives that have roots in the time period we're talking about or, you know, immediately after. But don't want to go off on that. What I wanted to say is that the North uses these European immigrants as cheap labor but they're also positioning these people against the newly freed slaves who a lot of them are going to be moving into the northern states to try to find jobs, especially because of the trauma that they've experienced in the south and because of the still segregation and racism that permeates immediately after the civil war is over. So these immigrant populations who are in the northern states be it Irish, Italian, Chinese, you know, whatever, whoever these people are, like, in their groups, right? The Dutch, the Germans, they're already... Well, not so much the Germans, but that's a whole other thing. They already don't have a positive association with them being in the country, right? There's a lot of... um Vitriol about these groups who have immigrated to America and are residing in the northern states, which is why they also live segregated. If you look at maps of um, some states in this country, they have, you know, ethnic sounding city names, right? Or they have large towns or parts of town where it has like ties to German culture or Dutch culture or Italian culture or Irish culture. It's because those people were also forced to live segregated. So, because they don't have a livable minimum even a minimum wage excuse me they don't have a minimum wage they don't want to have to compete with with 4 million other people who are now on the job market and anybody who understands basic economics knows that if you have all those new people on the job market that drives the price of labor down so we see a lot of this racial tension in the northern states even after the civil war because they don't want to have to compete with these people there are repatriation efforts to try to convince some of these descendants of slaves to go to Liberia, being an English speaking repatriation country in Western Africa that's set up, but they are not forced to go. And imagine many of these people would not trust it anyway, even in 1865 or immediately after. There's still slavery in the Western Hemisphere. Brazil is the last to abolish it in 1888. So why would they trust a a transatlantic voyage to the other side of the the, um, ocean and trust that you're going to drop them off in Liberia, you know, free and clear, not just resell them into slavery in the Caribbean or in South America, right? So these northern people didn't want to have to compete. And because there's no there's nothing set up by the government to keep things equal or to make things livable for most of the population, they are pitted against each other. So that is why you're gonna have a lot of the same racial tension in the North. It's just not necessarily written down as codes or laws the way it more blatantly is in the Southern states. The Northern states also have segregation. The Northern states have racism. They have prejudice, right? They have all the same things, but they really get typecast as being more morally better. And even today, you know, when you hear people talk about the South as a region, it's like, oh, you know how it is down there. It's like, well, it's that same way in the North. And to be honest with you, it's the same way in the West. California had laws, just, you know, kind of going off here a little bit, but California had laws that separated what they considered Mongolian children from even going to school with other races of children they had whole immigrant quotas that didn't allow people especially from China to immigrate to the country like for for a whole period and especially you know then you know we have some groups that have immigrant quotas and things like that the state of Montana and the state of Oregon banned black people from living in the entire state most black people couldn't live in many areas of the bay area until the 1980s so I don't want you, I know I'm talking about the North and the South as like a dichotomy here, but the West and the North are no better than the South when it comes to immediately after the Civil War. And again, for the next 130 so years after the Civil War is over for trying to make things equal, which is why today when we have discussions about the difference between equality and equity, most people need to talk about equity because on paper, we know that people quote-unquote have equality right you can apply for the job you know right they can't legally discriminate against you from doing it or you know or even getting it but equity means you know do you have representation so it's the same thing we're talking about for today there is less equity now I'm, I guess I'll say that for the next one I want to talk about um, equity and politics during the reconstruction time period. So I'll save that one. <laughs> I won't talk about that yet. I'll save it as like a teaser for you to listen to the next one. And it's also worth noting before I end that there were free populations of black people in the North. So when you look at a lot of the um, verbiage surrounding segregation, they use the term like freedmen, free ne- and free Negroes. So those are two different groups. Um, freed men would have been the people who had been slaves, and then free Negroes would be people who had never been enslaved, right? Many of them, obviously, all of them live outside of the South because of the situation where they might be, you know, re-enslaved even though they're technically, well, excuse me, they might be enslaved even though they're free, but those are two different groups. And so because there had been free black populations already in the northern states um, some people who had gone into Montana, but like I said, were eventually run out of the state, etc. It really puts into focus that there was no real equality anywhere. It's just you had to decide how you wanted to be discriminated against. That there, there was no moral difference between the North and the South, and that Lincoln really isn't the savior, that you know mainstream American history tries to make him out to be. So yes... He does free the slaves, but again, he doesn't believe that these people are equal to whites. He doesn't even really believe that they should stay here. I mean, Lincoln suggests that they go to Liberia and or Haiti because Haiti had had their revolution, which ended in 1804. So, it's you know, 60 years before the Civil War started Um, But he has really doesn't have that many plans to incorporate them equally. So it's interesting to me. I mean, obviously, it's unfortunate that he's assassinated. But I often wonder, you know, what would things have looked like had he lived out his second term? You know, would there have been would reconstruction have lasted longer than 12 years immediately after that? Um, Congress supports his agenda even after he's assassinated, which obviously makes Johnson upset. But and, you know, Johnson is the only other president who didn't go to um, the inauguration of the incoming president. So that's going to be angering for Johnson once he has to fill the shoes of president. But I often wonder, like, how things might have been different if Lincoln had lived to serve his second term. Or maybe if he would have changed his mind or even if there would have been a actual mandate that the that the newly freed slaves be sent to another country. So I'm going to go ahead and end this episode of Happy Hour History. Thanks for joining in. And I will be doing a reconstruction podcast soon. So make sure you listen out for that. Have a good one. Bye. (coughs) Bye.